Well, it's my honor to turn in God's Word this morning to Joel chapter 1 as we continue our examination of the book of the prophet Joel. To Joel chapter 1, verses 13 through 20. And as this is God's holy word as he gave to the prophet, let's attend with reverence to the inspired, the therefore inerrant word of the living God. Joel 1, 13 through 20. Gird yourselves and lament, you priests. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come lie all night in sackcloth, you who minister to my God for the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Is not the food cut off before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God the seed shrivels under the clods. Storehouses are in shambles. Barn houses are broken down, for the grain has withered. How the animals groan. The herds of cattle are restless because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep suffer punishment. O Lord, to you I cry out, for fire has devoured the open pastures, and a flame has burned all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field also cry out to you, for the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the open pastures. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us this time. Let's pray that he will bless it. Lord, we do indeed pray that you would be pleased to bless the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of your word this morning, that we might be growing in our understanding of you and of ourselves, and that we might all the better serve you hereby. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as the, much of the world around us is celebrating, preparing to celebrate the birth of Christ, a joyous time. Uh, of course, we in the RP Church are not bound by liturgical calendars, and so I'll just continue our preaching of Joel here. It might seem a little bit odd that we would be on such a somber scripture at a time of great celebration, but it behooves us to to remember uh, that we do need to be ever repenting and turning from sin, which is a huge message of the book of Joel. Uh, last time we saw in Joel 1, 1 through 12, a call for the nation, uh, the kingdom of Judah, to mourn. Uh, the Lord, through his prophet, called Judah to mourn in the face of a national disaster. Uh, in this case, it was caused by a plague of locusts uh, which had devastated agriculture. Uh, grain, figs, grapevines had all been devoured. And today's passage begins with a continuation of the call to mourn, now with a focus particularly on the priests who serve in the temple in Jerusalem. And we see in these verses further reason for Judah to mourn. In addition to the locusts, there's been a drought. Uh, depending on how we understand certain statements in this passage, uh, there may even have been rampant wildfires. Uh, we can 
read the references to fire in the pastures and fields, either literally, as crops and so on are being scorched um, by wildfires, being burned up, or we can look at them figuratively as if they're scorched by the heat of the sun during a time of drought, burned up in that sense. We have farmers in our midst, and I know that this is a, a something that makes us anxious to, to think of drought. And of course, uh, all of us are downstream from that, and uh, our livelihoods depend on the food and the goods that the Lord provides for us from the earth. So we can imagine what a distressing time this was for the people of Judah. So as we did last time, I'm going to take things verse by verse, sort of. I want to start with the description of the situation in verses 15 through 20, and then examine the appropriate response, and that's found in verses 13 and 14. The Lord says, here's what you should do, and here's why. And so I'm going to look at the why first here this morning, and then we're going to look at what we should do. So first, the description of the situation. Verse 15, alas for the day... For the day of the Lord is at hand, it shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Now we'll look at this concept of the day of the Lord a little more closely next time, Lord willing. But note for now, uh, the day of the Lord is an expression used in the Old Testament. We also read from the New Testament a reference to that this morning in 2 Peter chapter 3. But uh, in the Old Testament books of the prophets, we find this expression, the day of the Lord, used frequently to describe the outpouring of God's wrath on sinners. Isaiah 13.6, Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Ezekiel 30, verses 3 and 4, For the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, the time of the Gentiles, The sword shall come upon Egypt, and great anguish shall be in Ethiopia when the slain fall in Egypt, and they take away her wealth, and her foundations are broken. Amos 5.18, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord! For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. Sounds like Amos is talking to the kind of people that Jesus says will call him Lord, Lord in the last day, and he'll say, Depart from me, you... Workers of iniquity, I never knew you. Here, people in Amos' time are saying, we can't wait for the day of the Lord. And Amos is saying, "Uh, it's going to be terrible for you on the day of the Lord. Obadiah, verse 15, For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. As you have done it, it shall also be done to you. Your reprisals shall return upon your own head. That's just a few references to the day of the Lord. We'll deal more with it next time in a little more detail. And of course, there there will be an ultimate day of the Lord. That's what Peter was talking about in our reading from 2 Peter 3 earlier. Just as the Old Testament describes several smaller scale days of the Lord, there is an ultimate day of the Lord to come when Christ returns. But in every case, the expression is connected to judgment for sin. As we'll see in chapter 3, it also then involves God rescuing his people from that judgment. But there's judgment for sin that comes upon the world. So it's clear this plague of locusts, and also as we'll see this drought, is connected to God's judgment for sin. 
There are lots of reasons why, that we've noted before why God might bring affliction upon his people to teach them to depend on him, not to love the world too much, things like that. There are lots of reasons, but it's clear here that God intends this as judgment for sin, as correction for his people. Verse 16 describes as not the food cut off from before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of God. So there's a shortage of food. There's famine. As you might expect, we read about all the devastation just from the locusts last time, and now add to this this drought that we're going to be reading about here. And, of course, the food is short. Well, of course, food's not only necessary for life, and we can't go very long without food. Good food is one of the great pleasures that God gives to mankind in his common grace. Losing those pleasures sucks the joy out of life. And God does not want us always to be miserable. It's appropriate for us to enjoy the good things that he gives us. He gives us good things from the earth, and they rightly make us glad. Psalm 104, verse 15 says that God gives us wine to make glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread which strengthens man's heart. Uh, Notice the wine, the oil, the bread there. Just put the bread first and and you've got the same order of things that we saw in our passage from last week of the grain, wine, and the oil have been taken away. And we also noted that those were commodities used for ordinary everyday barter and trade. They were people's salaries that Solomon paid his workers who built the temple in grain, wine, and oil. And Psalm 104 verse 15 tells us God gives us these things for our enjoyment. Wine makes the heart glad. Oil makes his face shine. Bread strengthens his heart. When such good gifts are absent, we feel it. Not just in our stomachs. In order to correct his people, God will sometimes remove his blessings from them. Verse 17 then speaks of drought. In particular, the seed shrivels under the clouds. Notice There are clouds, but they're not raining. (laughs) Have you ever experienced a really bad drought? There have been a few times in my life that I've experienced I've seen us going through significant drought, and and especially, as I mentioned, that will make farmers anxious, rightly so. Their means of livelihood is, is in jeopardy. And you see the least little cloud in the sky, and you're just hoping, oh, will that just rain? You pray, God, let it rain. And sometimes there'll be even totally overcast days and not a drop of rain will fall to the ground. That's the kind of tantalizing situation that Judah's in here. In verse 17, the seed shrivels under the clouds. Or under the, actually, I said under the clouds. It should be under the clods. Misread that. It still makes sense what I was saying there. <laughs> but under the clods. Under the ground there. Storehouses are in shambles, bards are broken down, for the grain has withered. So my illustration doesn't really apply to that, the way it went off on a tangent there, but nevertheless, the seed shrivels under the clods. Seeds don't sprout, they shrivel in dry clumps of dirt. Grain that has grown withers in the field. So isn't that... Terrible. It's bad enough when nothing sprouts up, but then it sprouts up and you're, yay, it's growing, and then nah, it just dies there in the field. 
Storehouses and barns break down apparently from disuse. They don't even have a use anymore. Even the animals feel the wrath of God in verse 18. How the animals groan. The herds of cattle are restless because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep suffer punishment. This connects with the mandates of creation that we'll be getting into in Sabbath school upcoming here. That's because God set us over the beasts of the earth. When we're judged, they get judged along with us sometimes. Then we hear Joel's own lament and prayer. This is a time to lament and seek the Lord. The first part of verse 19, O Lord, to you I cry out. To you I cry out. And he describes why he cries out to God in the rest of verse 19 and 20. It's it's a time of intensifying drought and, as I mentioned, possibly wildfires, depending on how we read what he's saying here. The language about flames and burning could be literally talking about wildfires that take hold during such dry conditions. That makes sense. We know about that in a, living in a place like Kansas. Or it could be a figurative way of talking about uh, the destruction of plants that the drought itself causes, that they're shriveling up as if burned. But Joel says... For fire has devoured the open pastures, and a flame has burned all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field also cry out to you, for the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the open pastures. Even the wild animals are crying out to God because they have no water or food. All these things we see in verses 15 through 20 describe the reason for the response to which the Lord calls his people in verses 13 and 14. This is horrific conditions. And it's even worse because just think, yes, there was international trade in those days and you could import food when you were desperate, but it wasn't nearly as easy as it is today. The people are hurting, and even when they're importing food so that obviously they didn't all die of starvation, they got their food from somewhere, But their very livelihood is eaten up. They're not going to have any income. They're spending anything that they've got stored up in terms of income, probably on the food that they're going to have to import just so they can barely survive. And they're not going to have anything to start over with. One of the great things we're going to see later as we continue making our way through Joel is that God promises if they repent that he'll restore all the things that were lost to them, even the income and the things that they would have have gained in those years of drought and of suffering and of famine, they were going to get back on top of starting over. So they weren't really starting from scratch, so to speak. But they had no guarantee of that while they were in the middle of this until the Lord gave it to them. And all these things we see here that we just read about are reasons that the Lord calls for the response that he does in verses 13 and 14. Verse 13, Gird yourselves and lament, you priests. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, lie at night in sackcloth, you who minister to my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. The locusts in the drought mean that there are no grain or drink offerings. Nobody has anything to give. 
Right? These were the basic staples from which the priests were fed from the tithes of the people. And if the tithes of your grain and wine come from the people to support the priests, well, what if the people don't have anything to tithe? Or what if their tithe is just tiny? You know, 10% of zero is zero. So the priests are called to mourn as well. But the mourning of the priests and of the rest of the people is not supposed to be simply an exercise in self-pity. Oh, look at how terrible things are for us. Woe on us. This, this call to mourn is not meant to turn the people inward to the extent that they would become more self-centered. They're to look inward to see well, what sins have brought this about. But this is rather to show them that they need to be more God-centered than they have been. Notice that the, the priests are told to gird themselves. Gird, get dressed. Now we'll see that, that sackcloth is involved here, but the first meaning of gird there is that a priest would be uh, getting dressed in his priestly robes. It was inappropriate for him to wear anything else if he was serving in the temple. So he would put on his priestly robes and prepare to lead worship of God's people. So they're preparing to lead God's people in worship. But by night, it says, you, what do you do? You, when you're not in those priestly robes, leading the people in worship, you should be in sackcloth yourself. A sign of repentance and grief. Sackcloth is not comfortable to wear. I can't imagine trying to sleep in sackcloth. How scratchy and itchy and uncomfortable that would be. So at night they're to show this sign of grief. And they're to call the people to a special public service of worship. Verse 14, consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. So the service of public worship is for mourning. It's for repentance. So it appropriately involves fasting. They are to consecrate. They're to set apart to the Lord a fast, Joel says. Our denomination's directory for public worship says this about fasting. It's pretty helpful. Special days of fasting, humiliation, and prayer are particularly appropriate when God's judgments are evident in the land or when corporate sin in church or nation provokes the Lord and invites his judgments. That's what's going on here in Joel. And so the Lord says, fast. It is appropriate, the Constitution says, the Directory for Worship says, it is appropriate that such days be observed in connection with services preparatory to the Lord's Supper or on days designated by sessions, presbyteries, and synods for this purpose. In this case, God is the one calling the fast, or telling the priests, rather, with their authority to call the fast. So this here in Joel chapter 1 is one such time. God's judgments are evident on the land. And corporate sin in the nation has provoked the Lord's hand here, invited his judgments. Our directory for public worship continues on this. In Christian fasting, as 
an ordinance of God, the believer voluntarily abstains from food or some ordinary pleasure for a season for the purpose of seeking the will of God, strength for service, or deeper spirituality. See, in this case, they're seeking the will of God and deeper service by turning from their sins and uh, that have brought this judgment upon them. It should be accompanied by meditation. And I'll stop there and note Christian meditation. That is, that is, you're filling your mind with Scripture and meditating on it. You're thinking about Scripture. This isn't Eastern meditation where you empty your mind and see what happens to come. But no, you, you want to fill your head with God's Word. That's biblical meditation. It should be accompanied by meditation, self-examination, humiliation before God. Think of the priests sleeping in sackcloth at night. Confession of sin, repentance and renewed dedication to a life of obedience. So similarly, we see a time here when, through Joel, God is calling the people of Judah to fast in order to examine themselves. Why might I have brought this famine upon you? To humiliate themselves, to humble themselves before God, to confess their sin, to repent of it, to renew themselves to God's service. We'll see calls for those in specific in chapter 2. Considering that this is a solemn occasion of worship at the temple, the following from our directory of worship is also fitting. A fast day may be marked by a service of public worship in such services it is fitting that psalms of penitence be sung along with the offering of prayers of confession of sin and petitions for pardon. Think of Joel telling the people, cry out to the Lord. He's calling for prayer there. For calling upon the Lord. Cry out to the Lord. We see this as to take place in the context of public worship, also by the, the term sacred assembly that's used there. The Hebrew is a word rarely used in the Old Testament, atzerah, it's a, a solemn gathering. So this is one that's particularly solemn because of the difficult circumstances that they're in. A sacred or worshipful coming together. This is not a, a joyous celebration. This is a solemn occasion. The elders and inhabitants of the land are to gather at the temple. And by singling out the category of elders here, before mentioning the inhabitants of the land in general, uh, indicates that uh, perhaps the civil government is to be involved in this. The elders in the Old Testament Israel were uh, the backbone of government. They conducted local government and made legal judgments. And in this case, we see the priests are commanded to call this worship and fast, but the elders and the people are, are juxtaposed there with each other to come and be involved. So our directory also says if the civil authorities call for a time of prayer and fasting that is in harmony with Scripture... Sessions may encourage the people of God to pay due respect to that call. I wonder when the last time was, I can't think when the last time was, our, our civil government called us to a day of mourning and fasting before the Lord. It's happened. I know it happened. I know Abraham Lincoln did it during the Civil War, uh, but I don't know of other times. Maybe there have been more recent ones. Besides such general occasions, the directory says there may be times when families and individuals for their own reasons give themselves to prayer and fasting for a season. You are free in conscience to fast if you are desiring 
to repent of sin or to find the Lord's will in a particular matter. The main point here is that the appropriate response to afflictions is worship of God and a worship that may involve fasting, self-affliction. Not as if our affliction pays for something, but it's a time to essentially say to the flesh, you aren't as important to me as God is. It certainly will involve prayer, confession of sin, repentance, crying out to God for mercy and guidance. But worship is the main thing there. Think of how Job praised God when the Lord had taken all of his things away or allowed Satan to do that. Job recognized who was sovereign in this. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's a hard thing to do. Bless the name of the Lord in the middle of affliction that he's bringing upon us. Our flesh doesn't want to do that. That's why fasting is appropriate. Because it's again telling the flesh, you aren't as important to me as God. I remember reading many years ago a book by Increase Mather, one of the earliest pastors in colonial Massachusetts. and He titled the book Remarkable Providences. And many of the remarkable providences of how God had worked among the colonists were things that we would consider joyous. But then there were also difficult providences, and he nevertheless noted those as things that praised God. And one, one story was a story that was so sad and tragic, a shipwreck, and how the survivors, people had lost family members, and the survivors are just on these rocks and having to wait for rescuers to come out with boats and get them off of the rocks. And what did the rescuers find? They found the people worshiping God on those rocks and praising him, for this providence, even though they had lost their loved ones, they knew that God knew what was best. Oh, if I could have that kind of character. I'll share one more quote from our Directory for Public Worship on this. Not specifically about fasting, but it just reminds us, God made man in his image to glorify and enjoy him. In the public worship of the church, the people of God, redeemed by Christ, glorify and enjoy the triune Father, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as he reveals himself in his word. Matthew Henry comments on these verses here of Joel, The elders and people, magistrates and subjects, must be gathered together, even all the inhabitants of the land, that God might be honored by their public humiliations, that they might thereby take the more shame to themselves and that they might excite and stir up one another to the religious duties of the day. All had contributed to the national guilt, all shared the national calamity, and therefore they must all join in the professions of repentance. And further he writes, they must come together at the temple, the house of the Lord their God, because that was the house of prayer. And there they might be hope. To me, that's a strange turn of phrase to us, but basically saying there they might hope to meet with God because it was the place which he had chosen to put his name. There they might hope to speed because it was a type of Christ and his mediation. So in other words, the temple pointed to Christ. So if we're to learn the lesson that God wanted Judah to learn in Joel's day, 
But we don't flee to a particular place on earth. We don't have to travel to Jerusalem when we are repenting of our sins, but we flee to Christ. And this prefigured the time when God's people would meet with Him everywhere in spirit and in truth. So flee to Christ when you're afflicted. When a nation is afflicted, when we're starting, we see things like we mentioned last week, economic downturn and difficulties that could get worse, they might get better. We don't know what the Lord has in store for us here, but we need to flee to Him. Flee to Christ. We considered last time some reasons why our nation should mourn before God. We see now that those give us all the more reason to humble ourselves before the Lord, to fast, to repent, to seek His presence in solemn worship especially. We should not neglect it. We should flee to Him and not from Him. And so our main exhortation this morning is simply that, worship the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, grant that our nation may fast and pray and seek you in solemn worship. Help us to set the example as your people in the midst of this nation of humble and reverent worship before you. Grant that day by day many more may join us in the true worship of the living God. For we pray in the name of the one to whom we must flee at all times. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.